You are listening to the American Truth Project Podcast. Home for principles, not politics. It's the Seth Liebson Show. Now, here's Seth. Well, good Wednesday evening, July 22nd, 2015. Always looking to bring in new and different perspectives uh, to the issues. I um, stumbled upon someone who's now become a good friend of mine. Uh, based on a lot of mutual interests, uh, similar friends, uh, and a little bit of a mutual biography. Uh, we, we, Yeah, that, that's the way to say it. We went to the uh, same school together just at different times. Pleased to bring to you Barry Nussbaum. He is a national and inter- international affairs expert. He's the editor of the foreign policy blog, The Barry Nussbaum Report. Co-founder of a really great organization I want you to check out called The Israel Group, which is been organized by Barry to help oppose the boycott and divestment sanctions movement against Israel and um, so many other things we'll get to as we go on. You can find out more about him by going to his website, BarryNussbaumReport.com. Barry, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Seth. Thank you very much. Um, Barry, first time guest on the show. I gave only the briefest of sketches of your biography. Tell the audience a little bit about yourself, who you are, how you grew up, how you came to be doing what you're doing. So you want to keep this under a couple of days on the air then, yeah? Well, you know, whatever. We don't want dead air. (laughs) All right. Uh, Like you mentioned, Seth, we're both products of uh, um, a rather conservative uh, educational background, um, at the Claremont Colleges out here in California. Um, I studied under uh, a number of uh, political science uh, experts who uh, served in a number of administrations from Nixon to Reagan and so on. Um, helped uh, do research on a number of uh, books that became rather prominent in the field of politics and uh, political science. Um, actually, one of my classmates, uh, Went on to serve in the House of Representatives for a number of years uh, on the Republican side. Another one. Became- oh, was David Dreyer in your class? Uh, David uh, and I, he was um, in most of my classes with me. We had the same advisors. He was uh, a few months older than me. So when I was uh, a, a junior, he was a senior. Okay. Uh, and he was getting started in politics. We were, we were attending the si- similar functions. Sure. And uh, spent some time with him back in D.C., uh, when he was moving up the political ranks in the House. Cool. And like I said, and we discussed this earlier, we had a number of uh, similar professors that, that you also know quite well. Sure. Uh, who uh, sort of guided us in our early uh, political education. You so uh, from Claremont, um, I, uh, I went to law school. Uh, while at Claremont, I ended up um, working in the legislature uh, at the time. Uh, Gray Davis was chief of staff to um, Jerry Brown in his first administration. Uh-huh. At that time was Jerry Brown's very liberal state. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I happened to work um, in my uh, six months up there for uh, the Republican caucus. And I ended up writing at uh, the very young age of 20 the uh, state of the state uh, response to Governor Brown's uh, State of the State address. So um, I started rather young in Republican politics, not on the electric side, electric, elected side, but rather um, staff and doing political research. And when I went back to Claremont, I actually wrote um, some 
research for one of the institutes that you're familiar with on political research and surveying and uh, voter trends and so on. And, and since then, Claremont um, taught me what I knew about politics, at least in the genesis of it. California. Was, was Big Jesse in the, in the House at the time? Was yes, Jesse, he was. Yeah, yes, Jesse Unruh, right. Famous quote, folks, for those who don't know it, I'm pretty sure it goes to him. It, people use it all the time. They don't realize. I think it, 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 it originated with him. Money, uh, what is it? Money is the mother's milk of politics, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Big, Je- Big was, Jesse Unruh. He was the king, actually, of of raising money, and and ironically, I mean, it's one of the great uh, ironies of politics, at least in my background. Um, Fast forward a number of years, I went to law school uh, out here in California, uh, finished law school, decided I never wanted to be a lawyer, and went into the real estate investment business, which 35 years later I'm still doing uh, across a number of states. And uh, I had the occasion of being introduced to... uh, Ray Davis, who at that point was uh, the lieutenant governor. First he was the controller, then he was the lieutenant governor. And uh, I I got asked to take him golfing, and I'll never forget this story. Uh, I was on the golf course with him, just he and I. I didn't know him. I didn't tell him the story that I had opposed his boss's state of the state. I was actually working for the Republicans while he was working for the most liberal Democrat in the history of California. And we were on the fourth hole, and I know this because it's right by my house, and he turns to me and he says, hey, what do you think about me running for governor of California? And I said, okay. And he said, well, do you think you would support me if I would do it? And I said, eh, probably not. <laughs> but I really like playing golf with you because we're having a lot of fun. He had played on the golf team. Yeah at Stanford, and I played on the golf team at Claremont. Not yeah. that either one of us was that great, but, you know, we were competitive for those days. And he said, well, let's talk issues. So I had a big thing at the time, which I bought, I still do, about border security. And I know in Arizona, Seth, that's a very big deal. You bet. Too. You bet. So this goes back a number of years. This is it's a big old. deal here because we didn't do what you guys did, which was, you know, solidify the border. That's why well, it's yeah, a big one, deal here. And, and <laughs> that's why, why it's a bigger deal here than there in some respects. Yeah, we, we have a, a very close border here in yeah. San Diego. With yeah, them. surprise, surprise, that worked. <laughs> you actually can drive to it, and it's impenetrable. Yeah. yeah. I, I love it when people say, well, the border security fences don't work. Yeah, and they live in gated communities quite yeah, often. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you saw our fence, Arizonans would be, would be passing the bucket around everywhere to build that same fence on the Arizona Kind of a weird irony that of all the policies California gives the rest of the country, they don't seem to want to take that one. But we'll get to that another time. I, I want to build up with the rest. You continue on with this story on Gray. It's fascinating. If I'm slowing down. It's fine. Much. No, it's fine. Tell if me, you don't oh mind me God. interrupting. it's <laughs> People are falling asleep. No, no. So, long story short, I gave him my speech on border security, which I thought would really turn him off. And then I gave him my speech on... Uh, Workfare instead of welfare, because the California welfare system was just blowing up at the time. You bet. And we went on a number of issues, and he turned to me at the end of all that, and he said, I don't disagree with much of what you said. Yep. And I said, well, what kind of Democrat are you? Yeah. And he said, well, a lot of people call me a moderate Republican, but I'm in the Democratic Party. So... I said, well, I mean, if these are really your, your viewpoints on these things, and, and I'm not going to back down on this border security thing, let's talk. Long story short, three years later, 
he becomes governor of California. I was at his inauguration. I was at the head table. And he called me not long after um, his inauguration was complete. And he said, I would like to appoint you to run the most important property in California owned by the state, which is the fairgrounds in Del Mar, just north of San Diego. I've been there. I've been there. You bet. Yeah. So I became Gray Davis's first appointment in the state of California. The the governor here in California makes about 2,400 appointments. So I was the first appointee, and for 13 years I ran the fairgrounds for two administrations of Gray Davis, one administration of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and then... Part of the administration of Jerry Brown until someone in his office figured out that I was still on the board, yeah. <laughs> and I got and I got replaced by a very liberal Democrat. Sure. So um, I, I I got to see the inner workings of state politics up close, and I spent a lot of time uh, testifying in Sacramento about money and budgets and uh, California administrative politics, and so you know had the occasion to be involved in a number of other political races through those affiliations uh, all the way to uh, the White House and uh, because of my interest in foreign policy, which went back a long way, probably all the way to Claremont, yeah. uh, including Israel as well, which, um, you know, my travels there have, have gotten me in touch with uh, everyone from the prime minister to members of the uh, intelligence community, the military community, um, and their representatives here in the United States at the UN and uh, to the State Department. Well, that is that's a fabulous uh, and really very well told, actually, biography. I want to just for the audience's purpose let them know we're going to get into the depths of um, this uh, Iran deal shortly. But I wanted to set it up, Barry, because uh, as we got to talking, you and I did earlier today off air. I was uh, quickly realizing you are going to be want. I, I am going to want to have you as a regular resource for this show, and that was just so obvious to me earlier. I wanted to give you a chance to unload and introduce yourself to the audience that you will be regular with in the uh, in the coming weeks, months, and perhaps years. So, thank you very, very much for that. I want to turn we're in a, in 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 just a moment, if I can. To your thoughts on the Iran deal, you've been talking a lot about it. You've been writing a lot about it. And if I can just share with the audience what you said to me on the phone today, which I absolutely agree with, this may be, this may very well be the greatest foreign and national security blunder this country has engaged in in our lifetime, if not longer. Did I put it about right? I, I think you're on the right track, but I think it's bigger than that. And, okay. And the reason why I do, I'm not contradicting you, but I want to add to it. I, I think it's all that, Seth, and more. Okay. And the big difference is if you make a mistake with a foreign power and that foreign power doesn't have the reach to come screw with you later on a big scale, then it's a blunder. Yeah. But it's, it, it can be remedied. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I think the profound difference, historical difference, which I pray I'm wrong, yeah. I truly do, for the sake of the United States security, for our lifetime, Seth, our children, and who may come after us, my big concern is that I'm going to be right, 
And if I'm right, the ramifications could be catastrophic for generations. Let me, let me pause it right there. Let me put it right there because we're going into a break, Barry, and I'll pick up on the thesis that you're outlining when we come back. We'll go out with actually, okay, your then-governor's boss, I guess your boss's girlfriend at the time, a little Linda Ronstadt. We'll be right, right back with Barry Nussbaum. Stay tuned. This is Robinson. Jesus loves you more Pleased to uh, be rejoined uh, with Barry Nussbaum, and uh, as you heard from his uh, autobiography in the previous segment, uh, there's, folks, there's a reason I, I want him on. There's no substitute for brains, and brains are what we need right now. Brains and articulate men and women to talk about this most consequential of deals in, our, in front of our very eyes. Barry, before we went to break, you were outlining how my description of this deal with Iran, if anything, could be underestimated. And you made a very good point about it in previous blunders, whether they were made by any number of countries from the West, the United States, Great Britain, previous blunders, the risks were, were terrible. They weren't lights out. This could literally blow out all the moral lights, to paraphrase Lincoln. Yes, sir? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It would literally uh, change the way the world looks physically, um, politically, um, and change the at least the Middle East for uh, a millennium. Go with that. And, you know, you had outlined your studies undergrad, which were very similar to mine. We had some of the same teachers. Uh, in fact, I loved, always loved the title of one of your favorite teacher's books. Uh, it was called Kingdoms of the Blind. And <laughs> the lesson was to not build them, which I think we may have. But go ahead and put this a little bit in historical perspective, if you will. Let's do it that way. Let's look at this in historical perspective and then bring it current. Perfect. Uh, I've done a number of shows over the last uh, several months, Seth, on the subject of um, the old adage, those that don't know history or study history are doomed to repeat it. And uh, if we go back to the previous generation's um, study of history and go to 1938, there was a very famous, wildly popular prime minister in England at the time, who proclaimed that uh, World War II would never happen, named Neville Chamberlain, who went from London to Berlin to meet with Adolf Hitler and came back after Hitler had uh, uh, started his expansionistic um, military moves into a part of Czechoslovakia that Ironically, years later, uh, after the war was over, um, a number of generals that survived the war in Germany wrote in their memoirs that if Chamberlain had said, pull back or we're invading, would have killed Hitler that weekend. Mm -hmm. And World War II would never have happened. Instead, Neville Chamberlain extracted a promise from Hitler that if he kept the Sudetenland um, or parts of it, that there would never be a war and Great Britain would not... Uh, oppose him and landed in London, and there's a very famous picture of him uh, proclaiming peace in our time. His popularity was so great because of his proclamation in London, he could have been elected emperor. Um, just a few months later, in 1939, September 1st, Hitler invaded Poland, and obviously World War II was was 
uh, off and running. There's an enormous difference between uh, Neville, Neville Chamberlain's appeasement of Hitler and um, Barack Obama's appeasement of the Supreme Leader Ali in Iran. And it's literally two words, and those two words are nuclear weapons. Yeah. If Hitler had nuclear weapons, and they were developing them towards the end of the war, he would have destroyed the world. And he, and he made that very clear uh, to his uh, generals and scientists. Ironically, and I've been told this by a number of very important people, and I, I won't give the name, but very prominent within uh, the American intelligence community in a face-to-face meeting, uh, that the difference between the leaders of Iran and almost every other country in the world, and the CIA has studied this for years, which is why they are so opposed to this deal, is Iran is led by a wildly apocalyptic sect of Islam. And this sect believes that the only way to get into heaven is not just to die fighting the infidels, but to perish in the final battle of good versus evil, which is the believers versus the unbelievers. And and if you die in that battle, there's a very special place where you enter paradise and you dwell forever with Muhammad. So, you know, people in the West believe incredibly naively that we want peace in the world because we want to enjoy our families and our friends and our businesses and live a long and prosperous life. The people that are leading Iran believe the opposite. I'm not talking about the every man in the street because they don't control anything. It's um, a muletocracy, and there are no elections per se, and there is no public discourse. If you talk too loudly, you disappear, and your family disappears as Tens of thousands of people know it. The leading state executing people, um, at least in the Middle East, by far is Iran. The worry I have is, unlike Neville Chamberlain, who allowed Hitler the wherewithal to continue his expansionistic military that ended up destroying most of the Western world in Europe, uh, all the way to Russia, uh, Iran will have a, a reach around the world. Their nuclear-tipped uh, missiles will eventually be able to reach North America. Right now, their missiles can reach all the way to Great Britain without a nuclear tip on the top. And uh, my worry is when they become nuclear, which this agreement does not prevent it, it absolutely guarantees it will happen. Read it. It's there. Uh, what is going to happen if these same people are in power? Then you've got a country with nuclear weapons that has promised as late as yesterday to destroy Israel. And on Sunday, just a few days ago, had their um, biggest death to the United States demonstration in months while the deal had just been announced. And, oh, by the way, when Kerry was in Geneva finalizing the signatures... They were having Death to America rallies led by the mullahs in Tehran, attended by over 100,000 people. Let me what just let me pause on that very point for a moment, Barry. We're talking to Barry Nussbaum. Let me pause on that very point because you've said a lot here that I want to especially underscore as we move forward on this conversation. First, 
is the notion that peace to us may mean the same thing as peace to them. It doesn't any more than terrorism to us means the same word as terrorism to them, any more than the word liberation to us means the same as liberation to them. While they say uh, they're not uh, terrorists, they don't in fact uh, deny the actions that we label terrorism. They just look at it as a liberation struggle. That's, that's, that's the kind of problem we have. Our view of peace is a state of non-war. Their view of peace is um, destruction after war that might very well involve their own martyrdom, that might very well be achieved delightfully through their own suicide. This is why you can't have mutually assured destruction kind of policies with, with leadership that believes in suicide and martyrdom because death is not a deterrent, it's an inducement. This is in fact the thesis of your great professor's book, Harold Rood, Kingdoms of the Blind. It's, as he said in his book, the dangers democracies stumble into when they discount the likelihood of war by misunderstanding the nature of the enemy. That's what we're going to come back with, with more from Barry Nussbaum. You can read more about him, folks, by going to his website, the Barry Nuss, excuse me, BarryNussbaumReport.com. We'll be right back. We are uh, pleased and privileged to have Barry Nussbaum with us dissecting the stakes and the elements of this deal with Iran. Got a nice history lesson in the last segment with Barry. And again, the reminder that as bad or as often as we may want to invoke the Neville Chamberlain or the Sudetenland or the Peace in Our Time reference, um, the appeasement reference of the 30s, uh, the stakes are quite a quite quite a quite an element different, quite a dictionary, quite an encyclopedia different. Barry, um, go right ahead. Continue with where you were leaving off. As to, I think as I, yes, you were leaving off as just as we were praising the Iranian leadership, they were chanting and leading chants of death to America. Right, and and you know you can go to a more. Um Recent historical and, and and great ironal great irony here, Seth. Um, more recent historical document, which was Bill Clinton's negotiations with North Korea in 1994. Yeah. There are a number of postings online that I encourage your listeners to go research. If you Google this, you're going to see it. And I would Google um, Clinton's speech announcing. North Korean nuclear deal, and yeah. you're going to see him in the White House make a speech that is almost, this is such great irony, word for word, of what President Obama said last week announcing this deal. Clinton said, we have made a deal with North Korea. They're going to dismantle their nuclear development program. They're going to shut it down completely. We have prevented them be, from becoming a nuclear state. We are going to relieve them of the pressure of sanctions. We're going to open up the money flow, and basically they're going to come into the um, their place among the nations. The, ad, decade, the, the added decade, crow, yeah, a decade, decade later. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. A decade later, they're a rogue nuclear state setting off nuclear weapons like crazy in tests, proving they've got major weaponry. They've got 
the missiles to reach into Europe and for sure to hit the Hawaiian Islands and our Navy there, and supposedly working on long-range missiles that can hit the west coast of the United States, including where I am in San Diego, where the Navy is, is, is based for the western United States, including the SEALs and so on. And, oh, by the way, is they're selling that technology to, get this, Iran right now. I want to underscore this. I want to underscore this, that their reach can hit the United States. It likely can go to California. We have no missile defense for this. Could have, but don't. And, if I'm not stealing your punchline, one of the people, main people involved in negotiating that deal has also been involved in negotiating this one. Oh, the same lady was at the table for both negotiations and is very proud. This is her last great moment of achieving peace. She's the one that walked out of the Korean negotiations and wrote the speech for Clinton and also wrote Obama's speech. I mean, if you think about it in private industry, if somebody created a deal that could have destroyed your company, they'd be fired the next week. Only in government and only in our government would you keep that person around and then bring her back as your expert in negotiations and then have her write the speech for the president that when the two speeches are put side by side, Seth, and I mean Clinton's speech in 94 and Obama's speech last week, they're almost verbatim about how this is going to prevent a nuclear run. And and the thing that's really crazy is the previous deal – Their technology is being sold to the current deal. And that current deal company, a country, I should say, Iran, is going to have those long-range missiles that can deliver nuclear-tipped payloads to half the world. Let me also pause here for just a second, Barry, and underscore... I said we, we don't have a, a missile defense to protect California, and you're right. Immediately, Iran can hit Europe. Let me just underscore and remind, one of President Obama's first actions in 2009 was the dismantling of missile dis- defense in Poland and the Czech Republic to protect against Iranian missiles. So Europe is actually defenseless as a result of our feasance. Keep going. Yeah, so so let's. I, I think the appropriate step is is to make a, a couple of important points about what was promised when the deal was first announced, yeah. and what Kerry achieved. And and oh by the way, <laughs> it's such craziness. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. They're already discussing the Nobel Prize for Kerry in Sweden right now. Yeah. Oh, the, of course. The stupidity. He's already writing his acceptance speech. I'll, yeah, I'll guarantee you that. I will is, guarantee is you that. mind-boggling. I guarantee it, you he's working on his acceptance speech. If you, it probably is true, and 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 I can just imagine the buffoonery. He'll never have to give it, give it back. Right. Um, when you think back to the Rose Garden speech that Obama made some weeks ago, which I thought it was a mediocre deal if he could get that deal done. Almost everything he promised Seth that was going to be part of the deal now isn't. He said that it was going to prevent Iran from getting a bomb. This deal now guarantees it, because after a certain number of years, they can do whatever they want. Now, you think about Korea in 94, didn't have a bomb. Ten years later, they've got a whole bunch of them. So ten years from now, Iran 
according to scientists at the IAEA, could create in two months a half a dozen bombs. Right. That was number one. So either he lied or he just couldn't get that done, so he gave in. The second thing that was so clear is Iran was going to have to come clean on their nuclear program development. Now it's off the table. Yeah, there's no there's no accounting for the behavior up until now. That's right. That was a condition. Barry, um, you're um, you're going to have to just hold the rest of it for for the next segment. This is uh, this is very good and this is extremely comprehensive. We will be right back with more from Barry Nussbaum. Stay tuned. In depth analysis on this deal with Iran, the follies of it. With Barry Nussbaum, you can uh, read more about him and reach out to him at his website, BarryNussbaumReport.com. BarryNussbaumReport.com. He is the editor of the foreign policy blog, The Barry Nussbaum Report, which that takes you to the website of, co founder of the Israel Group, which was uh, put in place to oppose the boycott divestiture movement of Israel, which we will talk about another time. Right now we're talking about the possible disappearance of Israel and the United States as a result of this deal. Uh, Barry, before the break, you had underlined or underscored two of the broken promises President Obama was preening about in his Rose Garden speech. Continue on from there, if you will. It gets worse. I I gave you the easy ones. Yeah. Um, the one that there's there's two that are very disconcerting. Um, I'll give you the minor one first. Everyone knows that Iran has had thousands and thousands of centrifuges spinning uranium to enrich uh, the uranium to the point where it can be used for um, uh, a nuclear bomb of, of various designs. Um, it was promised in that deal that all of the enriched uranium within Iran would be declared and exported out of the country, probably to Russia. Uh, for Russia to, quote, keep it safe uh, out of Iran um, so that they wouldn't be tempted to grab it and continue enriching it. Um, oh, by the way, all that enriched uranium is now staying in the possession of the Iranian uh, nuclear uh, facilities. Now, so that's bad news. The reason why that's bad is it doesn't take long when you have as many centrifuges as they're going to keep operational um, to take the last step, um, especially with some of the secret facilities, and and go across the threshold uh, and and make that stuff fissionable and, and able to be placed within a bomb. Now here's the scary one. Obama promised unrestricted, anytime inspections, everywhere and anywhere deemed necessary to verify their compliance with the disarmament deal. That's what he promised. It's on tape. Look it up. It's very, very easy to verify what I'm saying. And he made a very strong statement about it. And my concern at the time, and I said this on air, was that the IAEA declared right after that speech that Iran had violated so many of the inspection criteria under a number of UN resolutions that, and by the way, none of these inspectors are Americans. They're from all these other countries around the world, and you can see their quotes all over online. The IAEA, which is the International 
Atomic Energy Agency, who was tasked with inspecting the Iranian sites for the last 15 years, said they lie, they've hidden facilities, we don't know what they're doing, we haven't gotten into all the sites, and oh, by the way, we're finding out about sites all the time that we didn't even know existed because they've never been declared. So they're in non-compliance with dozens and dozens of attempted inspections. How can we have assurances from the P plus five that's negotiating the deal right now that we'll have unrestricted access? But nonetheless, the president said we'd have it. Now, we don't get unrestricted access. In fact, on the military bases, where most of the advanced centrifuges are located, we may never have access to those bases. And if, and if as an inspection is requested, Iran can say no. And, and an inspection that they don't want has to go back to the committee for debate, and guess who sits on the committee to consider their denial of inspection? Iran does. Of course, of course. So it's it's like the murderer gets arrested and charged with mass murder, and he's one of the guys on the jury pool hearing the testimony against him, and then he gets to go in the back room and debate it. Yeah, no, it's exactly. it's crazy, and 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 they and you have to request this for I think it's twenty four days in advance, right? And and then they could say no, and then it would go to a hearing, and then the hearing is appealable. And during that period, don't you think that that one facility that was asked to be inspected, the stuff can be moved? Supposedly can be moved in a couple of days. So by the time, let's say, three months goes by, and the inspectors finally get in there, if they would, the centrifuges are somewhere else, and so is the uranium. Or, or, or they could also be activated to gin up what can be done by Iran in three months with nuclear power. Oh, absolutely. You yeah. know, the, the thing that, that strikes me as so crazy that no one ever says this, Iran has enough oil for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Look it up. Why do they need nuclear power Right. for, quote, peaceful purposes right. and, quote, research? It's sort of like the Japanese say they need, they need to kill lots and lots of whales for research. Right. What are they researching? How to eat whales? Right. You know, this is the same thing. And so what happens? We said, okay. Kerry just said, okay, we'll make an appointment. And, and if you don't want to let us in, then you get to decide what the penalty is. Okay, so there's more. What brought Iran to the negotiating table? Everybody knows the answer to this, even Obama. It was complete worldwide sanctions, especially through the Bank of International Settlements, on banking. Their economy was in near collapse. They came to the table for one reason. They're out of money, they're broke, and the regime is afraid of their control of the country collapsing because they're literally in desperate economic straits. That's the only reason why they came. So Obama promised in the Rose Garden the sanctions that are in place will stay on internationally until we've inspected all the sites in Iran, 
until all the centrifuges we want shut down are shut down, all the uranium is exported, and we know all the sites declared and undeclared, and they come clean on their past nuclear research program. Zero, zero of that happened. None of it happened. What did happen was Iran got billions of dollars from the United States. It got ta- it, it got its sanctions lifted, and it and, and and it got free movement, travel, and operation by one of the greatest killers of American troops in Iraq. All the while, keeping four American hostages. Right? Isn't that crazy? And oh, by the way, even. Samantha Powers, our, our U.N. representative, said in an interview a couple days ago, when being pressed, it's online, you can see it, isn't the money that's going to be given to Iran to be used for whatever purposes they want? Yes. Yeah. Since they're the leading sponsor of terrorism in the world, don't you think some of that money is going to go to Hezbollah and Hamas, and Islamic Jihad, and the Houthi rebels that are destroying Yemen. And she said, no, 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 we have controls. What are the controls? And she said, well, I suppose you're right. Some of that money will go to terrorism. Yeah, of course. We have replenished the battlefield against us. Barry, hold the thought. We'll be right with you. Yeah, different uh, meaning to that name, given the... uh Problems we're discussing with regard to Suleiman and Iran. But uh, Barry Nussbaum has been our guest and uh, is going to continue with us a little bit into the next hour. This is a short segment, but Barry, in these uh, just these last couple minutes of, of this hour, would you uh, mind stating the, the real tragedy here is not that we got a bad deal. It's what will result in the deal. And there are bigger implications as well. Uh, we have now endowed our enemy. We have now, we have now paid the terror masters. Stay on that for another minute or two, if you will. Yeah, excellent point. And, and I, this, this gets glossed over tremendously. And we're still saying, oh, by the way, Obama actually said this, which I found incredible that his speechwriters would allow him to get up and read this off a teleprompter. He, he said the other day that Iran is still the worldwide leading sponsor of terrorism. Yes. And, and, and if you wanted to find that, I think you just mentioned it, their terrorists have killed more Americans than any other terrorist group in the world. Yep. And I'm talking about Americans all over the world, going all the way back to Lebanon and, and the Beirut bombings. These guys are all over the world. And some of those activities have, have really um, cycled downward the last few years, Seth, because the sanctions have choked their money supply. Yeah. You know, when you think about $100 billion, how many Kalashnikovs and landmines and hand grenades and thousands of bullets and Katusha rockets, will that money buy for the crazy people that want to blow themselves up it's, on planes and it's at this point it's at so the, it's at this point that I want to remind the listeners that 911 was pulled off at the price of about $500,000 it's at this point I think it's important for people to realize how actually little money it takes off to destroy 
as much as something like was destroyed on 9-11. It's an, it's an incredible, it's an incredible amount of money we have now turned over to a country. Yes, John Kerry's State Department still calls the leading sponsor of terrorism. We're going to have to plumb our thesauruses, Barry, to find words beyond ironic. Maybe just put some prefixes in front of them, cruelly ironic, that we are negotiating with them. But not talking about the terrorism never was an issue. Never was an issue any more than the hostages were. Folks, I'm going to ask you to take your top-of-the-hour break here. We'll be right back with just some more concluding thoughts here from Barry Nussbaum. Stay tuned. Home for principles, not politics. It's the Seth Liebson Show. Now, here's Seth. Well, welcome back. Wednesday, July 22nd. It's only, I think, uh, happened a handful of times where I have kept a guest over to a new hour. This guest, this topic demands it. Barry Nussbaum, he is a national and international affairs expert, editor of the foreign policy blog, The Barry Nussbaum Report, co-founder of the Israel Group. You can go to uh, lo- you can go to his Facebook page, the Barry Nussbaum Show, and like him to follow what he's up to. You can follow him on Twitter at Barry Nussbaum, and his website is BarryNussbaumReport.com. For his fuller bio, just go back uh, uh, to my first hour uh, uh, to, w- once the show is posted uh, online, and you can hear it. But Barry, in the discussion we were having in my last hour about this deal with Iran, um, you will often hear that we actually had to have a deal, and it will be uh, uh, a tragedy. It will be a, you know, a, a, a mistake of lost opportunities if, if we oppose it, if the deal doesn't go through, that this deal is far better, in other words, than no deal. Yeah, that's an interesting concept, and that's been the president uh, and, and Secretary Kerry's big threat, that the alternative to no deal is war. And, you know, when Netanyahu came and addressed Congress, and Obama pulled out all the stops, like the stuff I heard behind the scenes coming out of Washington was just terrifying. It was the most disrespect shown to a foreign leader in American history, uh, a foreign leader that's an ally, where literally the entire Democratic caucus was called from the White House being urged not to sit in the chamber that day. And if you notice, the vice president, who is the president of the Senate, did not sit next to John Boehner, the Speaker of the House, when when um, Netanyahu spoke. He um, was kept away from the Senate that day, or the House, I should say, uh, in the chamber. And it was incredible disrespect. One of the things that I thought was so profound in Netanyahu's speech, and I've talked about this a number of times, is that he said over and over again, the alternative to no deal is a better deal. In other words, what brought them to the table were the sanctions that are crippling their economy. Don't give them nuclear weapons. Make a deal that ensures they don't have nuclear weapons. And if they don't want to do that, keep the military option on the table and strangle them financially until they agree. You know, the the crazy, 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 crazy part about all this The last clause in this agreement, which I don't know if this is ever going to be talked about, but it's in there. You can look it up. Is the P5 plus 1, which obviously includes the United States, 
are now supposed to train Iran on how to protect their nuclear facilities against threats of all kinds. Now, if you think back a few years, it's fairly common knowledge that an Israeli-American computer group put together a virus called Stuxnet that was implanted into the centrifuges in Iran and was wildly successful in causing a lot of the centrifuges to break down. And it slowed down their um, enrichment program probably by several years. I mean, it, it wasn't permanent. It didn't blow anything up. It just screwed up the computers that were running the centrifuges. Now, this is craziness. We are pledged, we in the Six Nations, are pledged to defend Iran against any kind of threat. So if there's a threat coming from Iran, we're obligated to defend Iran's nuclear facilities so that they're not destroyed, so they are preserved to prevent the facilities from being attacked of any kind. Folks, let me underscore some of this for those who isn't, this isn't bleedingly obvious to. Should Israel decide that it needs to do in Iran what it did in 1981 in Osirak, Iraq, Iran now has the United States as an ally poised against Israel. Yep. Go, go ahead, Barry. You know, I, I had the privilege of sharing uh, a dinner table in my home with one of the pilots that flew into Osirik out of Israel, and I've actually been on the base. It's a, it's a semi-secret base in northern Israel where those planes took off from. And I was there a few years ago where, and this is not a secret, the pilots there were training for a run to the various mountain facilities uh, in Iran, should that become necessary. After they blew up Saddam's reactor, the entire world, either publicly uh, or privately, did two things. In public, Israel was condemned worldwide, and privately, countries across the Middle East, Western Europe, including America, thanked Israel, because everyone was scared to death of what Saddam would do with nuclear weapons. Now, and by the way, he had no long-range missiles. Crazy, but no long-range missiles. And a much smaller, poorer country. Now you have a country that learned from Osirik not to put your nuclear reactor above ground where it could be hit by bombers or missiles, but to bury those facilities underground, for example, at, For at Fordor, which is underneath a mountain. There's only one bomb in the world that could take out that facility, and it's, it's, it's the deep bunker buster bombs that the United States has. Is that the, that Moab, they, the Moab bomb? Yeah, yeah, they think can get deep enough, and they I've think. talked to someone in the U.S. Navy who yeah. would know he's an admiral, and he thinks the U.S. Navy thinks that bomb could do it. Right. We refuse to give it to Israel, even though they've asked for it. We'd have to supply the planes because it takes a very heavy uh, plane to, to lift that thing and a long runway. So there have to be some accommodations. Israel's been asking for it since it was developed, and we won't give it to them. Now, 
were promised to defend Iran should that happen. So what is the position Israel's in? What do they do if the intelligence community within Israel and elsewhere realizes, and believe me, they've got people inside Iran, there's, and there's a huge, huge community of Iranians that don't want their country to go nuclear. They want Iran to be a member of the world society. They don't want to live under the mullahs anymore. They want to be an advanced culture like the country used to be. So there's a lot of information leaking out. These are the people that were in Western Europe saying, uh, our country's buying nuclear weapons technology, which they're still doing today. They were busted by the Germans a couple months ago and busted by the Brits three months ago for trying to obtain technology to build bombs. I, I, I was on the air about this a couple months ago, and I can give you the citations. This is getting no publicity in the United States. That's in contravention of all the agreements they've signed, and the U.N. should have sanctioned them. And it was literally would have, would have authorized major retaliation by every country that signed off on the previous deal. So what did we do in, in response? Nothing. We gave them that plus everything else they asked for. And every red line that Obama drew in the sand, he erased. So in a very short order... One of two things is going to happen, and there's only two alternatives now, Seth. Either A, Obama's deal goes through. It's already been approved by the U.N., which is which Obama prom- promised the Congress he wouldn't do. He wouldn't take it to the U.N. until the Congress had 60 days to review and comment. The deal goes through. Corker Menendez does not produce enough negative votes in the House and the Senate to be veto-proof. And the deal goes through, and Iran is on its way to be a nuclear state, and they've got $100 billion-plus flowing in, starting on day one, and worldwide terrorism goes to the moon. That's alternative one. Alternative two is the massive lobbying that's started by every group with sanity, that's meeting with every member of the House right now and every member of the Senate right now, lobbying them to vote no on this deal. It's going to take a two-thirds majority in the House and a two-thirds majority in the Senate because Obama has promised to veto the no vote coming out of both houses. He said it half a dozen times. I will veto it. So the irony is they have to vote no he has to veto, they've got enough votes to override the veto, and then the deal gets cratered. Otherwise, it all goes through and Corker Menendez means nothing. And then the world's different. You know, and, and, the, and there's, there's, there's a third thing that can happen, um, actually, in, 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 in both scenarios, which is there is now, I believe, going to be an international arms race, nuclear arms race, kicked off. Uh, in the Sunni states, certainly Saudi Arabia. And, and this is what's so disturbing to me, Barry, is, you know, we started off this administration with a, you know, Nobel Peace Prize for our president. And we now fast forward, uh, you know, what what will be about s- six years, seven years now, and the war is the world is much more dangerous, much more violent, much less peaceful, all from a movement 
that taught the world the word, the phrase, non-proliferation. We used to believe, and certainly the left used to lecture us, that, that the essence of national security should be about non-proliferation, and indeed we're members of many non-proliferation treaties. But we have set off now a proliferation arms race. We have set it off while leaving our allies defenseless, and in many respects making them more defenseless, less defensible, and we ourselves have left ourselves defenseless by the negligence of no defense, missile defense on on our end. We have one more segment we can do, Barry, with you. I'm going to ask you to stay. You've been generous with your time. I'm going to ask you to give us just a little bit more in the next segment because I want to take a take the global view now uh, when we come back, what this looks like for the world and what this looks like for America going forward as well, which really is first and foremost, or should be, our first concern. More with Barry Nussbaum when we come back. Barry Nussbaum has been our guest, national international affairs expert. You can go to his website, BarryNussbaumReport.com, for more information. want to wrangle every minute out of him that I can in this concluding uh, segment with him on the Iran deal. Barry, looking back at everything here, everything you've discussed with us over the last several segments, um, I, I, you know, you, I'm not sure exactly where this leaves us. It seems to me, it seems to me a campaign could be waged, a political campaign could be waged, not with just... Um, idiotic Republicans who can't see straight on this. Most of our caucus is okay, but we have a few idiots uh, when it comes to this. But Democrats, we should be able to make the case for nonproliferation to a party that once believed in nonproliferation, because just as Barack Obama really has nothing to lose anymore, you know, they have nothing to lose by opposing him, I don't think. You're 100% right. You know, one of the gals um, in the in the House who's a Democrat I'm trying to remember her name. I'm, maybe I can look it up here real quick. Um, from Hawaii, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, she's a Dem from Hawaii. She sits on the House Armed Services Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee, has come out very strongly against the deal. Yeah. And you know why? Because she said in 1994 we were promised Korea wouldn't have nuclear weapons, yeah. and now... Korea has nuclear weapons and missiles that they've demonstrated can hit Hawaii, which they've promised they would do, because that's where Pearl Harbor is. And that's the Pacific Fleet. So she's leading, she's, and she's very, very informed because she sits on the Foreign Affairs Committee. She's leading the Democrats in the House against it. There's a, right. there's a congressman here in San Diego named Juan Vargas who was uh-huh. having hearings today, uh-huh. and I was on the air with you, so I couldn't listen in. And he's come out very strongly against it. So there's a number of Dems that are, as you call them, the non-proliferation people yeah. that don't want to be tied to this Obama wagon that's going to be pulled off the side of a cliff because I think they see two things. Number one... It's a profound threat to American interests here at home and worldwide, including our allies. And number two, 
you've got a lame duck president that as he moves closer to the end of his term, thank goodness, is going to take a lot of people down with him yep. that have been part of the Nancy Pelosi and Senator Reid grouping of, we're going to follow this guy right into hell. And they don't want their political careers to be over, because by the time he leaves and this deal really takes effect, I think the profound tragedy is going to make itself readily clear to most Americans, the ones that are informed and want to get in and get empowered to do something about it. But to unravel this will be incredibly difficult, because by that time, Western Europe will be astoundingly entrenched in Iran, commercially. Billions will be flowing back and forth every month. And those countries that we've got on board right now on all the sanctions are going to be gone. So what are we going to do then? What's Israel going to do then? I'll throw one other thought out, which sure. is not known to most people, but I'm, and I'm not going to give you my source, but I know it to be true because I was told it to my face. Okay. There are discussions going on right now, you hinted at it a minute ago, between the Sunni states and Israel. Sure. For the first time in world history. You bet. Because they've got a mutual enemy yep. that all of them have been promised if they had the technology. Iran has said we will destroy Mecca and Medina and rebuild it. From the Shia perspective, we will topple the monarchies. And he listed the ones starting with Saudi Arabia and then Kuwait. They're scared to death. They've said publicly they're going to go nuclear. Pakistan will sell them the technology. And then what happens? You're going to have missiles from Saudi Arabia pointed north and from Iran pointed south and southeast and southwest towards Israel. Oh, my goodness. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, likes of which the world has never yeah, seen. Yeah, this is incredible. I have never uh, carried a brief for Saudi Arabia, even while I have to admit it is an ally, if not an uneasy ally of ours. But you have to take a step back and look at a deal that angers each and every one of our allies that include, that put basically Saudi Arabia and Israel on the same on the same team on the same page in the same position on the same plane and involved just you know so we don't lose the birds eye view here folks involved paying a state sponsor a leading state sponsor of terror with american blood on its hands with promises or dreams of more American blood, because we assume when they chant death to America, they're not going to be doing it with carbon monoxide. And they're holding American hostages. Which, by the way, Obama was asked repeatedly, can you please bring these guys home? Yeah. And he said, no, it's not relevant to what we're doing here. Every single time he compares himself to Ronald Reagan... You have to understand, folks, that when it came to the Soviet Union and negotiating, Ronald Reagan stepped away and crushed them economically. We have not stepped away. We've begged them to stay when they stepped away and have lifted up the economic stations. When it came 
to human rights in the Soviet Union, always an issue, whether it was from George Shultz's lips, Ronald Reagan's lips, or Gene Kirkpatrick's lips. It was always on the table. And goodness knows, when it came to Iran, the hostages came home with Ronald Reagan. Not one single comparison to Ronald Reagan here, folks, is apt or even, frankly, digestible. Well, you remember when when Reagan brought them home, Seth, the Iranians were so afraid of a Reagan administration because he said when he was campaigning, he will bring them home. You bet. Even if he has to send the Marines into Tehran to get them. And they were convinced that Reagan wasn't kidding around. So as soon as he took office, they were released. Why were they held during all of Carter's presidency? Because he was about as intimidating... As Obama is, yep. which is why they both come from the same school of appeasement. And why they were both hostages were taken both under the Carter and Obama regimes. Barry, this has been tremendously enlightening. I know it's been a long call for you, but um, I hope it can be a down payment and you will join us often. I, w- I look forward to it, Seth. You're a pleasure to chat with and uh, keep up the good fight and get the word out. I hope your listeners will take what we've talked about to heart and do something about it. You've got some good active representatives there in Arizona that um, have got to be encouraged to make sure their voice is heard on the House floor and the Senate floor. They've got to pick up the phone and call their representatives on both sides and both houses to make sure that this deal gets killed. We still have a, a chance. We've got 60 days to do it, but we need to deliver every single vote. Barry, thank you. Take care, man. Thanks for listening to the American Truth Project, a 501c3 nonprofit. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on our social media channels to stay plugged in to the truth. Go to americantruthproject.org and subscribe to our newsletter to stay informed on the latest news.